and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for The Prince's Bride. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host, cohort. Am I taller than you, Julio? I think so, yeah. Most Americans are taller than me. So you would be Inigo and I would be Fezzik, I guess, in this situation? The accent alone makes me Inigo. I guess that's true. Because I'm the not... play, but I don't brag about that. <laughs> uh, skin sword, Julio's master at handling that. But uh, <laughs> I'm big yeah, extras. Because <laughs> I'm not as good looking as Carrie Owls in this movie, so I'll gladly, gladly take the uh, position of Andre Rusimov in this one. Uh, so we are here today to discuss the Princess Bride. Why we are discussing that, we will get to here shortly. Rob Reiner, is this his directorial debut on The Contrarians? I think so. We've had him before as an actor. Do you remember which movie? Um, Let me see here. It's not The Wolf of Wall Street. Thank, thank goodness. Oh, Mixed Nuts. Is he in Mixed Nuts? I don't remember. Uh, I was looking over his filmography, and it has him here as uh, Dr. Kinski. Oh, yeah. He's uh, the, veter- the veterinarian. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay, well, then yes, but I was thinking of Bullets Over Broadway. He's uh, John Cusack's friend. I don't remember that. I remember Bullets Over Broadway. I don't remember him in it. Uh, those were both 1994, so doubling up here with the Reiner. Time to go back in time before he started taking small roles in movies better than the ones that he directed. <laughs> and he was just directing. But this was his fourth entry as a director coming off the heels of this is Spinal Tap, of course, his directorial debut, The Sure Thing. Which I've never seen in Stand By Me, which of course features a chubby, cute little Jerry O'Connell. Cushlash. <laughs> and this one uh, stars a chubby, cute Andrew the Giant. <laughs> yeah, Andre. It's so odd to see him smile here because everything else I'm used to with Andre is just like, please let me die. <laughs> so seeing him, uh, that big fucking toothy grin where he's got a million teeth in his mouth. It's terrifying, but good on him. Like when he catches Robin Wright at the end, he's mm-hmm. they, they just have that moment where they like they smile at each other and whatnot. Uh, we'll be talking about Andre Plenty. We'll be talking about Wallace Shawn. Uh, who else we got here today? Robin Wright, as we mentioned, Peter Falk. The the gang's here. Carol King, Billy Crystal, and 40 pounds of makeup. 
disgraced actor Fred Savage. Fred Savage. Uh, why is he disgraced? Is he canceled? Yes, it hasn't. The, the scandal is not completely out, but he was because you know there was a, a reboot or relaunch of the Wonder Years, uh-huh. and he was. I think he was the narrator. If he was not the narrator, he was like behind the scenes, a producer or something. And uh, there were there were some accusations. There weren't. Uh, I think it was like super specific, but the end result is that they they kicked him out of the Wonder Years. And he was like, but I was the original Wonder Years. Nope, <laughs> I, doesn't matter. <laughs> I am the Wonder Years. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. I don't know. I haven't heard of him showing up anywhere else. So I did not know that. Well, fuck you, Fred Savage. <laughs> but this is when he was an innocent kid. Oh, yeah. He was like, how old was he in this? This movie was shot in 86. He was born in 76. So he was nine or 10 when they shot this. With a, so I, one of my notes is about his cool memorabilia in his room. He's got a poster of William the Refrigerator Perry that I was like, man, that poster's probably worth a lot of money today. They probably just threw it away. Didn't even care about it. All right. Well, where are the contrarians? We're here to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. We'll get right into it here with The Princess Bride. But if you're still hanging on with us and you've never listened to this before, let's go ahead and tell you what it is we do. Raging against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as I say, that is our war cry. In this case, it replaces, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. (laughs) We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. And what we'll do is bring that movie down to size and discuss some of the negative aspects of it that maybe got swept under the rug by the critics. Uh, Bad acting, poor storytelling choices, uh, oblivious characters is one that we'll be getting to here in The Princess Bride. Um, You know, whatever it takes to make our case, make our claim that, hey, that high score isn't necessarily everything it's cracked up to be. Conversely, we'll find movies that are lowly rated, usually about 30% below on Rotten Tomatoes, one of those nasty green splotches that they call rotten. And as you could guess, make a case of positive defense and talk about, you know, some of the underrated aspects of it, maybe some underappreciated direction, cinematography, soundtrack, score, bold storytelling choices, underappreciated acting, whatever we need to do to make our case. Being that The Princess Bride is a certified fresh 98%. If you guessed we will be speaking poorly of it here in the first half, you are correct. Uh, We do this. We do this little podcast for two reasons. One, this shit is subjective, man. You can be as over the moon about something or as downright cynical and negative about something as you choose to be. Or if you set your mind to it, you can really find the positives or the negatives in something. And then also, Julio and myself, we speak for the masses and that the Rotten Tomato system is kind of flawed. And a lot of John and Jane Q public don't sometimes know what to take from those scores those percentages so julio and myself are here to give you the lowdown on these movies that we choose or in the case of today's episode in the past few ones our wonderful patrons choose everything i've just explained comprises the first half part one of an episode and that we call contrarians corner julio if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing uh in this case the princess bride from 1987 starring one-time WBF World Heavyweight Champion, Andre the Giant. They just have to check out part two, stick around for the second half. Starring Andrew the Giant as Wesley. <laughs> that was the first draft. Uh, yes, part two of our show, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel. We drop the gimmick, we forget about the Run Tomato score, and we just tell you how we experience the movie. Princess Bride is a classic. It's an American classic, maybe even a, a world classic. 
Uh, so I've seen it more than once. Alex has seen it more than once. Uh, it's got patron, a criterion. It's got a criterion. That's how you know it. Just it achieved universality. I I don't have the criterion. Alex, did you uh do you have the criterion? Did you uh did you Disney Plus it? Uh, Disney Plus for this uh, because I probably would have picked it up if I if the Barnes and Noble I went to had the Criterion, but they didn't. So I'm gonna have to wait till next year. That's right. Well, let's see how we feel once we're done with this episode. You might not want to buy the Criterion. Good call. <laughs> once we're done destroying this, but in real talk, you'll see how how this this rewatch really went, and that's also where you'll find out how the person that demanded this movie. Uh, feels about The Princess Bride. And that person would be Billy Dunham from the We Watch a Thing podcast. And if you know your contrarian's lore, he was here uh, with his his co-host at the time, Topher. They joined us for our Street Fighter episode. And mm-hmm. then later, he helped us during The Friends Travaganza. Every episode in The Friends Travaganza had a, a clip from Billy giving That's us right. pointers. So, Billy has been a, a long-time member uh, and friend of the Contrarian's family, and uh, it was time for him to contribute again, this time with with a demand. So if you want to know how Billy feels about The Princess Bride, that's also coming in real talk. First, as Alex said, this movie's super fresh, so we're going to trash it. It, it, it. it needs to be. 98%, I mean, it feels like not enough people are pointing out what's wrong with this movie. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. All right, so let's get to it. 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, a an American classic, and that's not an exaggeration or hyperbolic. Julio's on the hit the nail on the head with that one. Based on The Princess Bride, S. Morganson's classic tale of true love and high adventure, The Good Parts version, which was <laughs> released in 1973, written by William Goldman, directed by Rob Reiner, and the screenplay was actually by William Goldman as well. Double right, dipping. Not, not Goldwyn, Goldman, excuse me. Sorry, Will. A who's who of a cast here. At the time, though. It was just a who? I guess. Andre might have been the most recognizable person in this. I mean, let's get right to it. Andre the Giant was probably the second most recognizable sports figure of the 20th century. So I think a lot of people going into this knew exactly who he was. And he's fucking billed as Andre the Giant. Andre Rusimov doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. Um uh, uh maybe third. I'm battling in my head right here. <laughs> Are you having him and Hogan battle? Is that what's mm, happening? Fuck off. No. Uh <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I just assume people are always on my wave like it's obviously Muhammad Ali. He's the most recognizable sports figure in history. But um Andre would be up there, man. Maybe Mike Tyson, you could say, is up there as well, but I don't know if he had that Andre pub. Because Andre is one of those guys that like go to Namibia or something and just show him a picture and they'd be like, yep, that's Andre the Giant. Oh, they would say, hey, that's Physic. <laughs> we just got that movie here on Showtime. We, we know who that is. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're listening to this and you were alive uh, at the time of release, let us know who who was the biggest name in it uh, as like a star, because Billy Crystal is obviously probably the marquee attraction but i don't even know if he was advertised at the time this movie came out because he has that it's just a cameo he gets the and credit and uh carol kane's his wife and it's fun but um getting to it here julio now contemporary or reflecting reviews julio 98 percent still a hell of an accrual what uh what quotes did you pull for us today 
Uh, we're going to start with Derek Malcolm from Guardian, who says, The Princess Bride easily transcends expectations as a fantasy that has a few pertinent things to say about the genre, including the odd fact that the heroes of such things are often prettier than the heroines. Is Carrie Elves prettier than Robin Wright? Is that what he said? Was that the big takeaway when he watched the movie? I mean, I definitely watch, but I don't think uh, he's hotter than she is. Obviously. A lot of it is going to come down to what your sexual preference is. If you're into dudes, then I guess Carrie Elves is going to be your go-to in this movie. Unless you like them a little rougher around the edges, and then it would be Mandy Patinkin, I guess. But I guess right to judge it objectively, Carrie Elves is probably in his prime at this one. And if this movie, I, before, if what this movie leaves you with is that just comparing which of the leads is prettier, then that says a lot about how shallow it is. It's uh, the original Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You're just like, all right, which one of these people is hotter? I can't figure it out. I don't care about anything else. But, I mean, to be fair, I mentioned to Julio before we started recording that I did not remember Carrie Ells was like this zaddy at one point in time, how good looking he is in this. I was like, good God, because it's been years since I had watched this. And both him and Robin Wright and Christopher Guest, my God, I was blown away by him. <laughs> There's, there's too much hotness. This, the Princess Bride really boils down to just what, just turn off the sound and you just watch pretty people parade. <laughs> yeah, or just put on some slap bass in the background and light a candle. Have a good night alone. <laughs> uh, all right, next, Rob Vox from Flipside Movie Emporium says, As you wish, maybe gaining on will always have Paris as the single most romantic line ever. Rob Vox dragging Casablanca into this conversation. Uh, what do you think, Alex? What's more romantic? This, uh, Definitely not the grandpa saying as you wish to his little grandson. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Jay Boyar from the Orlando Sentinel says, For parents who have felt as if they were approaching the cliffs of insanity while enduring the inanities of standard kitty pictures, the Princess Bride may be a godsend. We're very familiar with those parents, Alex. The, the ones that are about to lose their minds and the only way that they can kind of keep it together is throwing their kids into the movie theater and just let them watch whatever's out there. Mm -hmm. Is that the, the kind of mindset that you need in order to enjoy The Princess Bride? I don't know. I think there's a little bit of something for everybody here. I, I'm more surprised at the idea that like kids would get much out of this. It's like Fred Savage shows up. Uh, Preteen heartthrob Fred Savage shows up every 20 minutes, maybe, in the movie. Just to remind you that he's there. It's a kid from The Wonder Years. What's like a popular line from a kid's movie that kids would quote all the time? I, I know there's plenty, but I'm blanking on now. I'm just imagining like a bunch of little kids merchandise selling with inconceivable on it. And like Wallace Shawn <laughs> being like the Gru of his day. Like kids are just like, oh, my God, it's Wallace Shawn. <laughs> all right. We're going to close the quotes with Arthur Ryle Lindsay from Slant Magazine, who says a film of remarkable forwardness honesty, and humor, built, like all fairy tales, around one message summed up late in the script. True love is the greatest thing in the world. It's pretty corny to begin with, but also, yeah. there's a movie that expressed that same sentiment in a much more exciting way, and that was Luc Besson's The Fifth Element. So, once you've seen that, I, this, this feels pretty quaint, <laughs> as far as an expression of true love. Uh, but those are the quotes, Alex. 98% run tomatoes. It's time to take the Princess Bride down. Take it to task. Take it to the pit of despair. Oh, 
The Prince's Bride by S. Morgenstern, Chapter 1. All right, maybe in 1987 this isn't played out, but the trope of the old man reading to the precocious little kid and then basically the stories being enacted in front of him. I think this was bludgeoned to death and killed before our eyes with uh, Adam Sandler's bedtime stories. <laughs> Were you afraid that Peter Folk was going to fall asleep in between sentences here? <laughs> kind of. Uh, and the problem is, like, I would get invested with the story and then dumb little Fred Savage would be like, oh, I don't <laughs> like this story. And it would cut back to them. Ooh, kissing. Come on, Fred. <laughs> anyway, th- this is if you've never seen The Princess Bride, it's that movie where it's a story being told. And then we go and meet our cast after a few minutes when it flashes to what the story is that's being read to us, so to speak. It's the tale of Buttercup, a young woman living on a farm in a fictional kingdom of Florin during a feudal-like period. Whenever she tells farmhand Wesley to do something, he always answers as you wish. It's his way of saying he loves her. They fall in love, and Wesley leaves to seek fortune overseas so they can marry. Wesley being Carrie Ells and Buttercup being uh, distractingly pretty Robin Wright. As Willie and I discussed before we recorded, Robin Wright to this day is still distractingly pretty, but you know, again, I hadn't seen this movie in a while, so it was like, oh shit. And then Carrie Ells shows his face. It was like, oh shit. And so is <laughs> Is he is he also distractingly pretty or more like reassuringly pretty? Like, oh guys can be this hot as well. It was like I went forward sixteen years to the set of Saw and I was like, Carrie, what happened, man? <laughs> I got tired of people wanting me for my looks. <laughs> I had to switch it up. He's chopping wood, and it looks like it's really him chopping wood. You ever chopped wood, Julio? It's not as easy as it looks. We have machines that do that for us, Alex. God. Yeah, and I know we might as well start the discussion now. You know, there's actual sets and practicality in this, <laughs> and y- your answer will be the same. We have machines that do that for us now. We have AI that can make people look as pretty as Robin Wright and... Carrie Ells. Why be pretty in real life when the machines can do it for you? Uh, that's, folks, I don't know if Julio is being facetious with that one or not. He, he could genuinely believe that. Just have AI. No, I, I do appreciate practical hotness. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, is, so this, is this, Alex, is this movie just opening? The opening salvo, the, the opening statement is that, uh, that simping works? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Just tip your e-girl over and over again, and uh, <laughs> eventually she'll fall for you. Send her a, is it a pitcher or a pot? What is it that he, they like have sex with their eyes while he reaches up and pulls it off the shelf because they don't <laughs> break eye contact. It's that uh, 30 Rock with um, Will Forte and Jenna. It's like, we're staring at each other until we achieve touchless orgasm and finished. <laughs> So he leaves to get these unforetold riches, but it's purported that dread pirate Roberts attacks his ship and Wesley is presumed dead. At this point, I got real excited. I remember when I was younger thinking that it's going to be like a pirate movie, with a bunch of pirate right. ships and stuff. But in the end, I mean, spoiler alert, we learn that dread pirate Roberts is basically just more of a myth than anything because there's no like snopes.com or social media to, to disprove it <laughs> dread pirate roberts has 10 different twitter accounts <laughs> and they're he just all shares the password <laughs> they all quote tweet young people dying saying were they vaccinated 
So five years later, it's set up that Buttercup is basically, it's like an arranged marriage, right? She's going to be handed over to the new Prince of Florin, Humperdinck, played by, who is that? Is that Chris Sarandon? That is Chris Sarandon, Jack Skellington himself. Yes. Going all the way back to our first episode of The Contrarians. Uh, but also, Alex, back in those days, I understand this is a kid's movie, so they couldn't really uh, explain it very much. But I think that there's, there's nothing, I mean, as far as arranged marriage, that sounds almost too nice. I think that's more like a, the royalty demanding uh, the subjects do their bidding. It's like if the prince wants you to marry him, then you marry him. That's it, because that's that's how it works. That's the law. That's why we should be glad that we have democracy in the United States. <laughs> well, I mean, he was married to Susan Sarandon in the 70s, and then he's got 80s Robin Wright. This dude's just racking up numbers here, man. Wait, what? I thought Chris Sarandon was her uh, brother. They were married in 1967 and divorced in 1979. But I is hope, he her I brother? I hope they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely hope not. Okay, where do you rank Chris Sarandon in the hotness scale, though? He's good looking. He kind of looks like a doofus in this. He definitely, uh, if the people who made Shrek told me they sculpted Farquaad after his look in this movie, that's definitely, I would be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, All right, so she's arranged to be wed. Before the wedding, though, she's kidnapped by three outlaws. As (laughs) Outlaws is the word used in Wikipedia here. They're uh, not bounty hunters, but they're you know, in a sense, pirates, a small Sicilian man named Vizzini, a giant from Greenland named Fezzik, and a Spanish fencing master named Inago Montoya. Alex, why is it an American actor playing the Spaniard? <laughs> Mandy Patinkin? Yeah. I don't know. But if this movie was made today, they'd be rioting in the streets when this casting news <laughs> came out. <laughs> was Antonio Banderas not available back then? Had he oh. not made the jump? Across the ocean. Let's see. So he would have been age appropriate. And yeah, it looks like he was still predominantly in uh, Spanish films at that point. He just missed the cut. So Rob Reiner shattered the glass and hit the Patinkin alarm. (laughs) Patinkin showed up with his stock Spanish accent. Like, how about this, boss? Is this going to work? I, I read somewhere, maybe I imagined it. I was just so like out of it when I was watching this movie. <laughs> but I thought I read somewhere that uh, that Liam Neeson was considered or that they passed on the Liam Neeson audition for Nico Montoya. Uh, because, you know, Neeson, for all his flaws, he's a he's an actual swordsman. He can handle a blade. Do you buy Patinkin as a, as a master swordsman? Actually, because I have this right in front of me, we can go ahead and solve that mystery. Liam Neeson auditioned for the part of Fezzik. What? <laughs> Liam Neeson revealed on the Graham Norton show <laughs> that he auditioned for Fezzik. Director Rob Reiner scoffed when he heard Neeson's height was only six foot four. I didn't realize Liam was that tall, but that makes sense because Rampage is a big motherfucker and Neeson <laughs> standing right there with him in A team. Well, now I want the movie. I, I want the, the, the fan cut where they use that wonderful technology we were talking about to replace Andre with Liam Neeson. Oh, hold on now. Not in history, Alex, just as an experiment. I was about to say, this is like one of the, you know, Dwayne aside, one of the actual good movies with a wrestler in it. So, And not just any wrestler, obviously. But speaking of Andre, 
and Inigo Montoya and what is Wallace Shawn's name? Vizini? Vizini. Vizini. Okay. They all have a gimmick. Uh, <laughs> Vizini says inconceivable. Seems every other word. Uh, Inigo Montoya is the swordsman who is looking for the man who killed his father, a six fingered man who murdered his father. And then Andre's thing is he's like the lovable giant and he's kind of not affable. He, it's like the thing of he follows orders. He's aware of like how strong he is, but he just does it in such like an innocent, kind hearted way. Like when he's he pulling them up fair. the rope. Yeah, exactly. That when he's asked to throw a rock at someone's head, he's like, that's not very sportsmanlike. Um, <laughs> and also uh, he likes to rhyme. Because deep down, he's a manic pixie dream giant. <laughs> I did think it was weird when he was like, uh, I like to make sounds that no one's ever made before. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, if you even if you haven't seen this, there's just the Andre quotes that exist in the ether of pop culture. Hello, lady. Anybody uh-huh. want a peanut? Uh the deleted scenes included such lines as my fucking back and uh, <laughs> where's my booze. <laughs> so they abduct, kidnap Buttercup and they set off with her and they're being trailed by what appears to be Zorro at first. He's climbing the rope and he's getting on us. Inconceivable. Is there anybody in the audience back in the 80s that didn't recognize Carrie Elves? Dude. All right. So that's one of my notes, like a little bit down the line here. We'll just breeze past what happens. So he catches up to them. He gets into a fencing battle with Inigo. Inigo explains, hey, I'm looking for this dude who killed my dad. They, the movie stops for 10 minutes so Inigo can recount his backstory. They do the Morpheus uh, Neo scene in the dojo where they were trying to hit me and hit me. They do that shit. <laughs> and he he knocks him out with the butt of the sword because he's not going to kill any of these guys. He goes and fights Andre. <laughs> he takes Andre's back and puts a rear naked choke on him and puts Andre to sleep. This and several other parts of the movie, though, when they do those shots where Andre's head is right next to like a normal person's head. You know, there's wrestlers that have been big and, you know, like the Big Show and Great Kali and Giant Gonzalez and um, obviously have like huge hands and are very tall and their limbs are like Shaq is like one of the all time uh, freaks of nature because Shaq is gigantic, but he's proportionate. What I'm trying Mm -hmm. to get at here is Andre was a literal giant. He had like gigantism. And so his hands and one of the things I read was it was like really cold when they were filming and as like Robin Wright was really cold, so he just would put his hand over her head because it covered it like a beanie, and like it would just kind of you know, here you go. So there are shots in and this movie. If she, uh, if she made him mad, he would squeeze. <laughs> yeah, he would do his shitty working punches that he used to do at that point in his career. <laughs> so it's my very point disappointing though, Alex. This 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 fight between. Uh, well, at that, that time, at that point, we don't know it's Wesley, but you know the Man in Black, and and Physic, because I'm like Andrew the Giant. It's a he's a wrestler. You you've sold him to me as a wrestler. You've told me about his matches. I watched the documentary you know, on HBO, and this fight is just like Carrie Elves gets on his back, and that's it. That's the end of the fight. <laughs> Rob Reiner was talking to scene, and Andre said maybe no bump tonight because he he. <laughs> 
God bless him, but Andre was in rough shape here. And in the second half, we're going to talk about where he was at his career at this point in time. And he was extremely limited with what he could do. And the parts in this movie where it's not him, it is so blatantly obvious it's not him. Because that's the whole point of what I'm trying to make here. There's no prosthetics on this motherfucker in this movie, man. His head really was that big. His hands were that big. Watch the documentary on HBO because they go through the whole rigmarole of, you know, had to two two seats on a plane, all that shit. As the story goes, the Japanese toilets weren't big enough to accommodate him, so he would have to use the uh, bathtub in his room when he would go on his tours of Japan. So I just feel bad for those. Uh, for the maids? The maids and, you know, the turndown service that just had no idea what they were walking into. But Cariel's, <laughs> as we've learned uh, through the history of martial arts, jujitsu, it's all about leverage. It's not necessarily about size. Damian Maya submitted Gabriel Gonzaga. I don't know if anyone <laughs> listening to this, that'll mean anything to them, but it's an example of the little guy isn't always out of the fight when it comes to submission holds. So he takes out Andre, puts him to sleep, rolls so him you over. Would buy this fight. You would buy this fight if you saw it on TV. L's versus Andre the Giant on pay-per-view. I'm putting down 60 <laughs> bucks right away. Uh, yeah, because that's the whole... There's actually been a handful of wrestling matches that not it's not been like Zoro versus a giant, but there's been I was just watching one the other day, the Bailey versus Nia Jax from NXT Takeover London. The thing was like Nia Jax was a lot bigger than she was, and Bailey was getting like manhandled, but eventually found a way to get a chokehold on her and just didn't let go until she passed out. That they've done that with the big shows several times too, of He's dominating someone, but they get him in a chokehold because that's one thing. No matter your size, if the blood and oxygen supply to your brain is cut off, then you go night night. So, yes, Andre gets rolled over, though, and he tells him, uh, you know, you're going to have a bad headache when you wake up. But may you rest peacefully and dream of large women. That's what I tell to myself every night before I go to bed. (laughs) And then he moves on to Wallace Shawn and engages in what he refers to as the battle of wits. If you like Wallace Sean, I assume this scene is like catnip. <laughs> For me, it just kind of went on forever. Marriage stories, Wallace Sean, as a super villain, as the mastermind. I, I think that I've got, I've been through too much with Wallace Sean to buy him as a, as an evil genius. Here, did do you ever buy him as a genius, or do you think the joke is that he's an idiot, and the people working for him are dumber than he is? Yeah, definitely the latter. <laughs> so he is a regular here on the contrarians though uh as we featured him in duplex southland tales and the aforementioned marriage story so he's a four-timer so is this obviously i mean he's out of the movie after this but uh, would you say that this is uh well sean's oscar clip he goes on this really long explanation of how smart he is you could also argue this is the best adapted screenplay clip, just when they're going back and forth about wits and whatnot. Mm-hmm. As you say, he's like, I'm very intelligent. How intelligent? You know, Socrates. Aristotle. Aristotle. Who's the other one he names? Plato. Plato. Morons. <laughs> <laughs> but what this leads to is, you know, the old three card money of. Cariel's has powder that you know will kill a man and he put it in one of the drinks and he has to figure out which one it is 
while Sean kind of dissects him mentally and then distracts him to switch him to where he thinks Carrie Ells is going to drink the the poison one. He drinks his drink, begins gloating, and kills over and dies. It's then revealed that Carrie Ells, Wesley, had poisoned both of them, but he had spent the past few years building up an immunity towards the, the poison. Anyway, at this point in time, he takes Buttercup with him, and my note just says it's so obviously Carrie Ells. Like, <laughs> it's the she's all that it's the girl with the glasses and her hair up when she takes him down it's like oh now she's hot it's like yeah she was hot before and carrie else he's not even like wearing like you know a point break nixon mask or anything like that he's just got (laughs) so what people laugh about when they watch zorro and they're like how do they not know who that was it's what was that disney movie that bombed hard with army hammer (laughs) the lone ranger yeah, I remember the Lone Ranger was the same thing. He wears this tiny mask on his face, and people are like, who is that? <laughs> and more so, she can like see him and hear him talk, and his hair is the same. So it's very <laughs> confusing as to how she doesn't know it's him until he says, as you wish. It's a would-you-kindly moment for you Bioshock fans out there. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even change his voice. Um what do you think of this this approach to uh, romancing? It's like uh, Carrie Elves went from one extreme to the other. He went from from simping to nagging. Ten minutes of him just trash talking Buttercup and telling her that she's he's basically saying you're a whore. He's uh he's Ray Liotta's wife outside the the mistress building. He's just yelling at Buttercup and and just really uh, demeaning. This this poor woman who rightly assumed that he'd been dead for five years. I mean, she has every right to uh, rebuild her life with the ruler of the land. Yeah, it's definitely questionable. It's a, an odd tactic thinking that he worked this hard to get back to her. And now he's just like the negging approach, as you said, it's like, you know, he's one step away from saying, like, nice pants, make your butt look fat, that type of thing to her. <laughs> <laughs> but when she does figure out it's him, they embrace, they kiss, and now it's all hunky dory, and they're back together. And this is, you know, a half hour into the movie. I'm like, is this it? We we going home already? And we learn the story of uh, Dread Pirate Roberts, where in actuality, it's just more of a myth that people, or it's like a character, it's a gimmick that people inherit. It's basically like Batman in the cinematic universe. Just every few years, someone new gets it and takes over. <laughs> uh, and, but in fact, the real Roberts had been retired for 15 years. I thought that was a funny addition to the story. So it's Adam West. And yes. Carrie Elves is like the Ben Affleck, I guess. And he's about to pass the baton to the Robert Pattinson of the Princess Bride universe. I suppose. <laughs> but it, that's different, though, because isn't Affleck still like part of some of it? Man, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't watch The Flash. I think I got to get the feeling that they shot a lot of uh, Affleck as Batman footage 10 years ago and they just keep reusing it and finding little bits that haven't been put in movies yet and just tacking them on to whatever next DC project is out there. As you do. Then he explained that the name was the important thing for inspiring the necessary fear. You see, no one would surrender to the Dread Pirate West. So they're walking through this kind of rough terrain. It looks like they're in the forest somewhere. And Julio, uh, I knew this would be right up your alley. There's just basically the sequence where they fall in quicksand and then a big creature attacks them just to basically kill some time. Not just that, but the, the creature is not lovingly rendered 
by computer animation. Instead, it's just this really clunky animatronic. So that will be right up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie Elves rolling around with this inanimate object. Acting like he's having, like he's having to put up a fight, pretty much. Uh, and like they fall in the quicksand, like it's going to be some big like struggle to get out, and then they just kind of get out very easily. <laughs> and same thing with the the fight here with the big old rodent. It's just it's kind of there, and then it just stops. It is kind of funny the amount of times he has to stab it. It's definitely like an Austin Powers style joke where he just keeps <laughs> stabbing it over and over again. Yeah, it kind of goes a little too far for a kids movie. It's still kind of a. That's what I mean. You know, I'm kind of surprised this is deemed a kids movie. And there's no joke at the end because you would think, okay, he stabbed a lot. Like, like in Austin Powers, there is a punchline, but in this case, just he stabs it and then he looks at Buttercup and they both kind of have that that face of a uh, yeah, that was intense, and then they move on. Eventually, Prince Humperdinck and his men, including Count Tyrone Rugen, catch up to Wesley and Buttercup. This is when we learn that uh, Christopher Guest, Count Rugen, has six fingers. And so I think we know where this story is going to end. <laughs> but Wesley's captured. Buttercup pleads that he's not killed. Humperdinck's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then he turns to Christopher Guest. He's like, I want that man killed. <laughs> it's a very Mr. Burns moment. And then Christopher Guest goes, as you wish. As you wish. Here, though, is when we learn that that Humperdinck is behind all this, that he paid Vizzini for him and his boys to kidnap Buttercup because the hope would be that he basically, they would kill her and that the people would think someone from the country of Gilder killed Buttercup and they would frame them for the murder and then it would start war. So I guess the idea is he could eventually conquer more land. So he's a, he's an evil prince. He, all he cares about is power. He's money hungry, power hungry, he just wants it all. There have to be easier ways to start war than having your super hot new wife murdered. <laughs> Somebody, Vizzini probably sold him that plan. And he's like, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and he said, you could have more power, to which Chris Sarandon said, inconceivable. And then Wallace Shawn got a dictionary and looked it up and was like, I like this. I'm going to start using this from now on. <laughs> So we, we get a lot of, uh, I think there's different levels of British accents floating around this movie. What I got was, I got serious uh, Keanu Reeves and Dracula vibes of uh, British accents. Like, I know Carrie Elves is British, so I guess he gets a pass. <laughs> but we have uh, Robin Wright, Christopher Guest, Chris Sarandon. And then, well, Mandy Patinkin is doing his own thing. But those three are American actors that are trying to be British. Do you buy them as British people? It's very, very movie accent. It's like, you know, Ben or Paul or any of our British listeners would immediately be like, ah, oh, they're taking the piss. But, you know, and in, the <laughs> in the case of this movie here, it's very much like enough to keep like American audiences at ease. It's like when Colin Farrell talks how Colin Farrell actually talks. People get freaked out by it, kind of. Because uh, they're just used to him, you know. I know he's Irish, but you got to keep the audience comfortable, and the target audience in this case was American audiences. And here, it's like enough for them to to feel safe of like they're British, but not British enough. <laughs> you know, it should have been they should have dubbed all the all the stuff dealing with Buttercup and Wesley and everybody else uh, 
it should all be Peter Falk's voice because he's reading the story. So he should just be doing the different voices. Just the Aguirre approach where it's all dubbed over by Peter Falk (laughs) in (laughs) post-production. I'm down, man. Let's do it. Uh, In the pit of despair, Wesley's being tortured by like this suction device, which is basically just like a pretense for cupping, which a lot of athletes do today (laughs) to help with blood circulation until it's uh, Humperdinck that shows up and just like sets it to overdrive, right? But at first, they're just like, okay, on on the lowest setting, it takes a year off your life. That's pretty brutal. Yeah, it's intense. Like cupping's usually done like just around areas of muscle. This is like on his fucking head. So yeah, it's just like <laughs> sucking all this shit out. But on the good news trail is Inigo Montoya and Fezzik, Andre, come to. They're seeing uh what happens? Like the army is preparing for war and they find Inigo and he's just pissed drunk. He's drunk because I guess he can't handle the defeat, having been bested by, by the man in black. That's right. But then Andre shows back up and sobers him up. Looks like he made, makes him a mean pot of beef stew. And then that's not enough to kind of wake him up. So he takes him and he's dipping him in the hot and the cold water until he eventually sobers up. And I, I do like that scene because he's like, enough! He eventually, you know, gets to the point of sobriety. So they figure out the plan of they're going to go back and help him, right? Yeah, they're going to. Well, because... Here's a, a failing, a serious failing of the movie. Somehow, Andrew the Giant knows that uh, Christopher Guest has six fingers. How? He never saw him. Andrew the Giant was passed out, dreaming of large women. But he comes back to Inigo and tells him, hey, the guy that took uh, Wesley had six fingers. And Inigo says, that's the guy that killed my dad, so let's go for revenge. But then Inigo also says... Uh, with Vizzini dead, we don't have anybody that can be the brains of the operation. So the only other smart person we know is Carrie Elves. So let's go rescue Carrie Elves so he can help us plan the murder of the man that killed my father. That's right. So very convoluted. <laughs> I, wouldn't you think if you have Andrew the Giant, all you do is just charge against the castle? Well, that's a, when they decide they're going to go to the castle. He just goes, everybody move. And then everyone like just, you know, <laughs> he's the... He's Moses. He's part in the sea of people there. <laughs> oh, God. Andrew the Giant in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> let my... <laughs> There's no way I can do it because anytime I say let my people go, it's just going to turn into Heston because I'll start like Andre and be like, let my people go. <laughs> Andre in the Ted Commandments. What could have been? That's still be like the, the 50 Commandments. He's just holding all those tablets. <laughs> <laughs> Andre was a good-looking cat back in the early days. Yeah, in 56. He would have been all right. I always forget Yul Brenner's Ramses. Coming soon to the Contrarians. <laughs> the Ten Commandments. Easter 2024. All fucking four hours of it. So w- what we mentioned of Humperdinck turning it up to 11 and cranking it you know, all the way up. Did you get the feeling that uh, Christopher Guest was was getting off on this? That he had a, a massive there definitely erection. Seemed, seemed to be some sexual inspiration behind it. Not gonna lie. Yeah, he he bites his lower lip and kind of glances at the at his assistant. Like, you see what's happening here? And to correct myself, there I always forget how young Andre was when he died. He was only ten when the Ten Commandments were made, so he <laughs> he still would have probably been six foot at that point. So he could have been an extra or something. <laughs> So while he's being tortured, he lets out a big giant cry, and that's when 
uh, Inigo tells Fezzik, that's the that's the sound of ultimate suffering. You know, we got to go save this guy. And when they finally get to Wesley and he's dead, you know, they realize that he needs a miracle. But this is when it cuts back to Fred Savage. He's like, he can't be dead. What happens? What's the end of this? And I'm like, oh, he represents like modern people that have no patience. <laughs> Like Fred Savage would be live tweeting this and posting online like, <laughs> oh, Carrie Alls died. I'm not even going to finish the movie at this point. <laughs> Taking a selfie with the, yeah. with the movie the in the background. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they say they're going to need a miracle. They head on over to Miracle Max's hut. This is Billy Crystal's moment to shine. Not, not unlike Mel Brooks as yogurt in Spaceballs. I really, <laughs> the makeup is oddly similar. <laughs> and I'm going to say it was the same year. Yeah, Spaceballs was an 87 movie as well. So too much similarity for me being comfortable with that just being coincidence. Well, Billy Crystal comes out just swinging. It's oh, it's yeah. just the shtick yeah. is turned up to 11. It's it's unlike anything else in the movie. Yeah, tell me about this, Julio, this scene. You got Carol Kane and Billy Crystal just decked out in all sorts of prosthetics and makeup. And uh, I mean, the point of this is that he brings Cariel's back to life, but we need to make sure we get a lot of shtick and joking in along the way. <laughs> yes. It's like the like the swamp sequence from earlier, right? Like this this could have gone a lot faster, but <laughs> you needed to pat it. And you patted it with Billy Crystal humor. It, it's uh, is he even human? Is Miracle Max human? Or is he like is he really old and that's why they put all the all the makeup on him? Or is he some sort of alien sorcerer that has the powers to bring Carrie Elves back to life. Yeah, I guess I don't really know because the joke is he has a wife and they fight just like a married couple and I didn't know what to make a lot of this. I'm going to be honest with you. It is a pretty wacky world, but the idea that you could bring somebody back from the dead might be just a step too far. And Billy Crystal doesn't do anything to make us believe that, <laughs> that there's any that there's science involved in this, right? Doesn't he feed him like chocolate? I, I think that's part of the the recipe. That's a miracle pill. The chocolate coating makes it go down easier, but you have to wait 15 minutes for full potency, and you shouldn't go in swimming after for at least what an, an hour. Yeah, an a hour. good hour. We're off the rails here. I mean, just Rob Reiner didn't know what was going on. No. He made the mistake of letting Billy Crystal just cut loose. But wouldn't you know it, he brings Wesley back to life. And the problem is, is he's literally waking up. So it's slowly his body parts are starting to wake back up with him. So we get the physical, you know, weekend at Bernie's-esque comedy of uh, Andre and Mandy Patinkin carrying him around. It comes down to, though, this the triple threat here. The dream team is going to have to take on 60 men. 60 of uh, Humperdinck's guards as the wedding is fixing to commence. This priest, Alex, that uh, officiates the wedding, do you think that he he was there when Billy Crystal was doing his thing? And he was like, oh, oh, that's the game we're playing. And then just added his own spin to his his dialogue when he's getting them married. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't think of anything involving the scene anymore without immediately going to Michael Scott at Phyllis and Bob Vance's wedding. And just <laughs> marriage. <laughs> I could see this being funny, but this goes on forever. Yes. You know, you're in trouble when Michael Scott quoted you. That's just, oh, exactly. That just means that you went too far. We've used this sound drop before, but like the all time Michael Scott movie quote is, uh, you're talking to me, Raging Bull Pacino. <laughs> 
unfortunately, he quoted Princess Bride correctly in that episode. But, we, you know, if you've seen this, even if you haven't, you know what this is. Mowage and this the uh, the character, the impressive clergyman, Peter Cook, just keeps going on and on with high pitched pronunciations of words. Uh, fortunately, Andre poses as Dread Pirate Roberts. And, you know, they set like an effigy of him on fire. And it's also Andre in a black cloak at night. I would run away if that giant was coming. You didn't need to fire. No, he just had to come out of the gate like he would back in the 70s in Japan. Like when he wrestled Stan Hansen, if he just came out like that, people would run. I mean, (laughs) you can watch that match. People flee in terror in the crowd. And so it's a little too late, though, as Humperdinck has sent Buttercup back to her quarters. Fortunately, though, she didn't say I do. I noticed that this time. Is that true, though? What? Like, if if she doesn't say I do, they didn't really get married? Because there's, like, legal paperwork. At the end, like, the I do, I think, is a formality. What really matters is that there's a document that says that you're married. Yeah, if they already, if the Justice of the Peace already signed their marriage license, <laughs> she's SOL on that one. <laughs> Humper thinks it's going to take half of what she owns. Half of Wesley. Half of Wesley's heart. <laughs> But Inigo comes face to face with Count Rugen. Christopher Guest gives him the spiel. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And in like <laughs> what I hope would be used for the in memoriam of Christopher Guest is that clip where he just squares up and then takes off running in the opposite direction. <laughs> it's so great. It's it's funny, but it's also very uh, deflating, I guess, because you know that's one of the things that you're looking forward to is. The Inigo versus Rogan. Rogan? Rogan? Rogan, yeah. Seth Rogan. The Inigo versus Rogan <laughs> battle. <laughs> uh, one of the things that we've been looking forward to is the, the battle between Inigo and Rogan. That's been teased. It's been built up to. And so when you make him a coward, when you make Rogan, because we haven't seen him fight. All we've seen him do is torture Wesley, which was like, oh, well, Wesley was already defeated. He was tied up. That's not impressive. So... We know that he's supposed to be kind of a threat. Otherwise, what's the excitement? You know, why would I care if Inigo is going to fight him if he's going to beat him really easily? So, yes, it's funny that he runs away, but it's also it just sucks the tension out of that confrontation because you know that he's really not that good then. So, and we know Inigo is good because we've we've seen him fight before. So, I feel like Reiner and Goldman sacrificed the climatic tension for a cheap joke. Boo. Boo! Like that old lady. <laughs> the Buttercup's nightmare. Even cheaper, I think they literally just stole some of the score from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which came out the year before for this chase scene here. <laughs> Sounds almost like an NES, like a Castlevania-style <laughs> score, but it, ver- it gave me very big Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 vibes. Man, Andrus Leatherface. That would be terrifying. Uh. He, can't really, he can't really chase after you though because his back gives out after three steps <laughs> yeah it's the the end of the first texas chainsaw but it's andre and sally breaks through the glass and starts running and he takes two steps outside with a chainsaw ah, <laughs> and then falls down <laughs> to the ground all right so inigo christopher guest eventually eats it he does get his shot in with like a little dagger and stabs an ego, but he's, you know, he's got to defend his father's honor and he's just too good. 
and he makes cold blooded murder in he this does, kids movie, especially because he makes Christopher Guest beg for it. He says, "I want my father back, you son of a bitch," and then stabs him. It's pretty metal. All those five, six year olds cheering at the sight of Christopher Guest getting impaled. And speaking of metal, once Buttercup gets back to her room, she's just gonna like Romeo and Juliet style kill herself. <laughs> Again, in a kids movie. Wesley assures her that the wedding's not legit. It's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll take care of that. And so Humperdinck shows back up. They tie him to a chair. Uh, Inigo volunteers to kill him, but he's like, nah, man, let him live. I just want him to know that we're happy and he's not. And then Andre's (laughs) downstairs like, hey, I found these four white horses. I was thinking maybe we could ride them all. And then they just ride off into the sunset together. (laughs) Wesley goes, White horses, how appropriate, like the rest of the movie. White. <laughs> and we go back to Peter Falk with Fred Savage, and it's a happy ending. And Fred Savage says, maybe you can come back tomorrow and read me that story again. And Peter Falk says, as you wish. And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah, is, is the implication that Peter Falk is Wesley, that, that Carrie Elves, like this was a true story and Carrie Elves grew old and became Peter Falk. It's Fred Savage, Wesley's grandson. I mean, we're at the end of this, so we can bleed into real talk here. It's obviously Peter Falk's he's saying I love you and you know <laughs> Oh obviously. Do you think Fred Savage gets that? <laughs> I don't know. I would hope so. God, I would have a lot more fun if if it was Fred Savage completely misreading that and going like, oh my God, my grandpa is the man in black. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he like, no, what happens is Fred Savage like smiles and like nods. And then he has that moment where he like kind of starts like um, Penny Lane when she's on the plane (laughs) and remembering, you know, the story. And then he looks out the window and Peter Falk's getting on a white horse with Andre the Giant riding away. (laughs) I love it. I hope that's in the criteria. (laughs) Yes. And Rob Reiner gives the introduction like this was the original ending of the movie. <laughs> it was too much. It was we felt it was muddly the the overall message of revenge is good. <laughs> well, I had a bit of an easier time with that than I was expecting. Every once in a while we come across these movies that are great classics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it's kind of hard to talk shit about them, but you know, really whitewashed movies like this that are kind of saccharine <laughs> offer themselves up pretty easily. But Julio 98%, and I think we're probably on the same page with this. I think it's time to drop the negativity and move along to some real talk. What else can I say, Alex, but as you wish? Oh, perfect. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley. What have I done? Ow. Oh. 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 